This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Andrew Smith. He's a licensed insolvency trustee with Sands & Associates. He's a very straightforward guy. We'll be the judge of that, Andrew. Very personable as well, helping folks assess their situation and evaluate legal debt solutions. Understands that debt... Uh, help can seem pretty complicated and overwhelming, uh, but believes with the right knowledge and friendly approach, it doesn't have to be. Number one piece of advice, and I'm going to ask you about this, Andrew. I love this. Always read the terms of contracts and agreements before signing. You should know exactly how much it's going to cost you to repay any money you borrow and how these costs fit into your monthly cash flow. It sounds like pretty, I mean, it's good common sense, uh, how often do you run into folks who haven't done that? Is it a, is it common, Andrew? Yeah, it is fairly common. Unfortunately, some people uh, they they're excited about their purchase or uh, the thing they might need to acquire uh, in the sense of maybe getting a loan to buy a car. They're they're really excited about the car, uh, and they don't really read the terms to find out exactly how much it's going to cost them over the long haul. And the long haul, I bet that's the key, right? You look at your monthly payment and then think, okay, well, that that's doable, but it's going to go on for, you know, I don't know how long a car loan can go on for, but years and years in it, in, in some... Yeah, nowadays they, nowadays they can, do, they can uh, do a car loan up to 84 months. Wow. Uh, and that can really, uh, that's almost seven years and really can push uh, people's cash flow uh, for the long time. Yeah, and, and Andrew, if you can believe it, I actually had a client um, a couple weeks ago. It was eight years of financing. So I couldn't believe that. I'm like, so 12 times eight, what is that? That's like 96 months of financing? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Like, that's a long time to be making a payment. Yeah, it is. It is. So one of the things we're going to focus on with you, Andrew, is folks who are self-employed, how they get into trouble with debt, and what can be done about it. Um, so let's talk about sort of the most common thing that you come across. Yeah, the most common uh, creditor that I find uh, anybody that has is a self-employed individual. Uh, usually they're ending up owing money to the Canada Revenue Agency for personal income taxes and GST. So that's uh, the it, uh, the com- most common creditor is Canada Revenue. Yes, it is. Wow. That, that's usually because from filing taxes at the end of the, the, end of the year and just realizing maybe they don't have the money set aside to pay that debt. So how does somebody get into that kind of situation? Like, what what aren't they doing? Uh, what I find with dealing with my clients is that usually there's a number of things of how this debt arises. Uh, sometimes it's from just when they go to file their taxes um, and their GST returns. They're, they realize they're not making the... Um, regular installments to towards the obligations. Uh, so when you're a self-employed person, uh, CRA usually wants you to file um, monthly or quarterly installments with them and pay pay something towards that debt. But when what happens is when they actually go and file their return, um, they might not have actually made those installments. Um, sometimes people actually just 
don't file their income tax returns um, or file their GST returns that they've signed up to do. And CRA just turns around and looks at past performance of what they've had filed, and then they assess them for an amount. Um, and in that case, they get a letter saying, hey, you owe um, this amount of money, and a person is kind of shocked about it too. Now, Andrew, one of the challenges that I have when I sit down with folks who are self-employed is that, you know, basically anybody can become self-employed at any time. You know, you don't have to take a crash course. There's really nobody that gives you, you know, here's the pitfalls that you need to, to look out for. So I wonder, Andrew, can you just kind of break it down? You know, what are the basic things you're talking about, you know, installments? What, what does that mean for someone, um, you know, who has a, a basic, basic business? And then also GST, just for someone who maybe is not self-employed or has started and maybe isn't doing things right. What should they be concerned about on those, those two factors that you mentioned, the installments and the GST? Yeah, so installment payments, uh, I mean, so the government wants you to actually uh, make a monthly payment towards what you might actually owe at the end of the year. So, so if, if you, you thought you were going to owe, you know, $10,000 in taxes, they'd want, you know, just under $1,000 a month. Is that, is that right? They yeah, want to wait every, yeah, and every quarter they might want you to pay $3,000. So once a month pay $1,000 so that you meet that $3,000 quarterly payment. Um, with GST, usually someone might have to file their return uh, quarterly or even annually. Uh, so when, what a self-employed person should be doing is tracking what they've, <clears throat> what they're actually collecting in GST from their customers, uh, as well as how much GST they're paying when they're buying supplies. So that then at the end of the year when they file that return, they can uh, take the two differences and then they should be making a remittance to the government for that balance of the GST that's owing. So I think that's an important uh, point too. So if, if someone's self-employed and they're charging GST, um, you know, they are actually able to recover some of that GST. To your point, Andrew, if they've got to keep all their receipts for purchases in their business. But, you know, I've seen that again and again. People pay GST, but they don't actually know that they can recover some of it on their purchases. Yeah, and that's the, and that's something sometimes uh, I deal with that with my clients as well. Is they, they sometimes don't realize that they're actually overpaying. Uh, on their GST back to the government because of they're not tracking uh, their their GST that they're paying. And that is the important thing that they have to do is they have to keep those receipts so that they can prove it to the government that, yes, I have paid this GST and then be allowed to deduct that against what they've collected. So it sounds like the, there's a definite need for either the self-employed person to be an extraordinarily good bookkeeper or they need to have a good bookkeeper that's that's kind of knowledgeable pretty knowledgeable about what a self-employed person's taxes look like or or yeah from day to day week to week and then at the end of the day knowing what their tax situation is going to look like yes it is uh i mean they do have to be organized i what i tell my clients is that try to find yourself a good bookkeeper um, reason is is because uh, as a as a um, insolvency professional, I'm good at insolvency. But if I were to be doing my own plumbing, um, that's not something I have any skill in, um, and I would be making mistakes. Um, so I I tell them, hey, take your all your receipts, put them in an envelope, uh, pass them off to your bookkeeper, get them to prepare and record your transactions, so that then you know um, someone's tracking it, and then they can give you a report saying uh, a 
to in respect of your GST. They can do a report telling you, okay, this is how much you owe, and then you know that, okay, I, I have to make a remittance to the government, say, of $500 to pay the GST. And at least then at the end of the year, when you when you come to the um, you get your final you file that GST return. You know that hey, I've made installments towards that debt, and now I don't have a, any a large bill to pay. And Andrew, what does that relationship look like with with a bookkeeper? You know, it's, that have to be you know a CA or a CPA. Is that someone that would cost a lot of money? You're meeting them all the time, or what do you think? You know, a good working relationship. You know, and again, let's assume it's a relatively straightforward, you know, self-employed individual, perhaps a tradesperson or something like that. You know, what would they really need from a bookkeeping relationship? Do you think? Well, I think they need to have uh, some confidence in who the person uh, they're dealing with. It doesn't have to be a CA or a CPA um, to do the bookkeeping side, but if you have a, a really good relationship with uh, with this, your accountant, they might be able to recommend a good CPA and or sorry, a bookkeeper. Uh, but you might only need them to do maybe 10 hours of work a month, uh, and that might cost you a couple hundred dollars uh, to do, but uh, it would give you the peace of mind to know that th- this is all being recorded, this is all, all being tracked, so that at the end of the day you can rest uh, and know that you're not uh, left with a large tax bill. And, and Andrew, Elaine and I, we, we talk a lot on the show, you know, about owing money and how it can be pretty scary. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't choose who you owe money to. Um, but why don't we spend a minute, you know, from your perspective, why is the government somebody that you really wouldn't want to owe money to compared to others? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't want to be owing the government a lot of money because they do have uh, the power to uh, to come after you in, in ways that, say, your, fi- your financial institution can't. Um, they can garnish your bank account. Uh, they can send notices to your your customers and request uh, that they they pay the money that they owe you uh, to the government rather than paying it to yourself. So that's incredibly um, disruptive, right? Not not to mention embarrassing. They're basically cho- choking off your livelihood at the source there. Yeah, yeah, and if the yeah it is, and what also the the government can do is they can register the debt in federal court and then put a lien against your property. So you might not even know that uh, um, that you have a lien against your property uh, until they actually notify you, um, and that's the that's the hard part as a self-employed person. If you get yourself into a situation where you do owe the government uh, quite a bit of money, um, and they have not been able to collect that money from you. Hmm. So that, that's a, a little bit of a tough situation to be in, obviously. And, and Andrew, I know day to day you meet with people who are in these situations. Um, you know, what type of options exist if you owe the government money? Because I know, uh, you know, obviously from having guests on this show and from sitting down in my day-to-day, a lot of people are of the opinion there's nothing you can do if you owe the government money. Uh, you've got to pay it or come, you know, come anything, you're going to pay this debt one way or the other. Um, is that true, or Andrew? What are the options? Well, the people, as a self-employed person, they do have some various options under the, the legislation. Um, they do have the ability to file a consumer proposal if they're debts are under $250,000, um, and they could make an offer to the government to pay back uh, something less than what they actually owe um, and not have them garnish their bank accounts uh, they could, and have their uh, accounts receivable seized, or, and they, that could stop a lien being put on their property. Um, another option, if it was a worst-case scenario for them in the sense they didn't have any other they couldn't file a consumer proposal. They could file bankruptcy um, and and start fresh. Um, and depending on what their their financial situation is, 
their bankruptcy could be nine months to uh, to twenty one months. Yeah, so definitely not a lifelong sentence to deal with the debt, and nothing you'd want to take lightly. But uh, I think for people to understand, there is hope out there, and you know, government debt, as I often say, it's the same as every other debt. We we can deal with it. We can help to restructure it. Um, Andrew, I wonder if we can talk just a little bit about some pieces of advice. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting a bookkeeper, and that seems like a really strong piece of advice for someone who's self-employed. Uh, what else? If someone is listening here, and again, maybe they're just starting off in business, or they might already find themselves in a state where they owe the government, uh, what's what's another piece of advice beyond a bookkeeper, do you think? Uh, well, finding a good bookkeeper is definitely, the I, I think, the top um, advice that I can always give people. But I think even if you are going to track, uh, or you just don't have a very... Um, large business, uh, you can, can just make monthly installments to the government. Um, so maybe you don't actually know how much you're going to owe them, but if you make a, a monthly payment to the government for your personal income taxes um, or your G, or towards your GST account, um, the government has, has to recognize that when you actually file the returns and then give you credit for those payments. That's really good information, Andrew. Listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and you want more, go to the Sands, uh, Sands and Associates uh, website. It's sands-trustee.com. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So people are often very hesitant to find out about debt options, uh, like bankruptcy, because, you know, the number one fear is, what do I lose? What do I have to give up? How true is this, Blair, uh, that you do lose all your assets? Because that was my first thought. I'm Mm going to lose everything right now. I've got to figure this out and out goes everything. But that's not true. No, absolutely, completely untrue. Really, nothing could be further from the truth. So uh, when you go through a bankruptcy, there's automatically property that the government says, you know, there's a public policy purpose to the whole bankruptcy system, and it's to get you back on your feet. It's to help you start again without burdened by debt. And if you were to have everything stripped away from you, you know, your furniture, your car, your tools, all things like that, how would that help anybody? You've got no ability to come out and earn income and turn yourself around. Um, So definitely there are exemptions that kick in and they vary by province. Um, But in BC, there's a number of exemptions that actually result in just about everybody that files for bankruptcy keeps just about all of their assets. Okay, well, let's talk about what those exemptions are. Yeah, so the really key ones that, you know, almost every client uh, will will claim, uh, essential clothing and medical. Aid. So any clothes in your closet, but even more important than that, anything that you need for a medical reason. So I had a client this morning who has a CPAP machine. So for someone that has sleep apnea, that's an absolutely life-changing uh, type of a machine. And she was concerned that if she files for bankruptcy, am I going to take and collect this $2,000 machine and sell it off to pay her debts? Right. Absolutely not. It wouldn't be. Wouldn't matter if that thing was worth $100,000. Whatever medical um, apparatus a person might need, absolutely exempt along with all of their clothing and, and their personal objects. And that's a valid concern because it is something very specialized, Mm -hmm. some cases very customized for that particular person. So I can see why that would be a concern. Yeah, so so exactly. So some of my senior citizen clients, they're, again, very 
concerned, well, how am I going to be healthy if I have to lose my medical aids? You're not. If you have to file for a bankruptcy, we can deal with the debt. You're going to keep your clothing. You're going to keep your medical aids. What about your household stuff like my furniture, Mm -hmm. my television set, my stuff like that? Yeah. So I have people ask me, well, you know, when does the person come to the door to start carting things away? Yeah. Um, Or even before they get into my office, they tell me, well, the collection agent threatened me yesterday that he's coming tomorrow. And that's why I booked the appointment today because you need to stop this guy from coming to my door. Because sometimes people get in trouble because Mm -hmm. of the purchases that they've made, whether it be the the new furniture or the new stereo or whatever. So that would automatically be a concern. Yeah. And what the province of BC says is regardless of whether you're in bankruptcy or not, um, there's legislation that protects you for all of your personal assets, all of your household furnishings. They're exempt up to a value of $4,000. Now, $4,000 might not sound like a huge amount, especially right if you've ever done an insurance claim, you know, you're looking at replacement value and what's it going to cost me to buy it again. But the lens that we use as a trustee and the province instructs us to use is what if you had to sell it? That's the value that I care about. If you had a garage sale, your new couch that you might have bought a year ago for $1,000, what do you think that's going to fetch at a garage sale? You could sometimes barely get $100 for it. Sometimes 50 bucks. Yeah. Shopped with my mom before. She'll bargain a dollar mug down to 50 cents again and again. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> you've got to think your goods are worth more to you than they would be to, you know, a disinterested third party, so to speak, who doesn't know the history, um, who doesn't know, you know, where, where the goods have been. Um, so really, if somebody does, you know, an honest inventory of what's in their household and really figuring out if we were to sell it, what would we get? I've never had a client in more than 10 years of practice that actually had more than $4,000 of household furniture if we look at it in that lens, the, the garage sale value. Yeah, that's that's really an important, important, important issue to, to bring up. It's mm-hmm. not the replacement value. It's what you'd get if you had to sell it. Exactly right. Yeah. Now, what, what if I'm, a, what if I'm a, a craftsperson or, mm-hmm. or, or a tradesperson? What about that? And I've got yeah. tools. So again, another huge hesitation people have is they think if they go and see the trustee, well, you know, say you're a drywaller, for example, and you've got a bunch of hand tools that you need, a bunch of materials you need to do your job. And you think if you go to deal with your debts, you're going to have to turn over all those and they get sold. As we talked about earlier, completely the opposite is the case. The whole point of a bankruptcy or of a proposal is to get you back on your feet, to allow you to earn income, to be a productive member of society. So the government gives an exemption, and it's much bigger than even for household goods. So it's still based on a garage sale value, but it's $10,000. Okay, because tools are very, very expensive for mm-hmm. uh, tradespeople to have to purchase in the first place. Right, expensive to purchase, but again, we're talking about right. a resale. So, you know, that person might have spent twenty or $30,000 or more on tools over the years. Um, if we go and get those tools valued or ask the person to do that, again, on a garage sale, a Craigslist type of a basis, very rare to have greater than $10,000 of tools. And in the situation where if someone might have more than $10,000 of tools, well, then we just work out. We say, okay, the first $10,000 is free and clear. You're allowed to keep that. If you have more than that, then we'll say, okay, let's go on a payment plan. You got an extra $500 worth of tools over the course of the bankruptcy, pay $100 a month for five months, and you'll keep all of those assets. Okay. Next thing, and probably one of the most important things, if you live on the lower mainland and you, let's say, are a a private contractor and you're working all over the place, Mm -hmm. is your vehicle. Right. 
So do I lose that? Because that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So again, the whole principle, let's get you back on your feet here. Now, there's also some reasonableness that comes into it. If you've got a brand new car that you paid cash for and it's worth $20,000, no loan against it, and you owe $10,000 in debt, well, I'm sorry, you're allowed a partial exemption on that vehicle, but you don't get to keep all of it. What the province has said is there's an exemption for a vehicle of up to $5,000. So if you have a vehicle worth less than $5,000, and if you have to go into bankruptcy, you don't lose that vehicle, you don't pay anything extra, nobody can ever seize it from you, and the $5,000 value is not if you were to, you know, um, try to market it for a year, get the best possible price, that's you looking at a black book, a wholesale, and auction value for the vehicle. So, you know, as long as it's not a very new vehicle, quite often it's going to be worth less than than $5,000. Okay, so that sort of covers the idea if this vehicle is financed then too, right? You take that into consideration. Yeah, so that's a great point, Elaine, because, you know, someone listening might say, well, I've got a 2015 car. It's worth a lot more than $5,000. Let's say it's worth 20, but I owe 25 on it, for example. You know, what happens there? You said if it's a $20,000 car, you might take it. Well, what we care about is what's the net equity. So if there's a loan against that vehicle, if the car is worth 20 and there's 25 owed against it, if we were to try to seize that car, we'd have to pay $25,000 to the loan against it. So it wouldn't make any sense. So we really look at what's the value of the car. We take off the value of any financing that might be secured against it. And then that's the exemption that you're allowed. So if you had a car worth 20,000, there's 17,000 owing on it. Your net equity is $3,000 and that would be below an exempt value. You wouldn't pay a dime more to keep that in the over the term of the bankruptcy. Okay. The other thing is lots of folks have RRSPs mm-hmm. uh, in all different sh- shapes and forms. How how vulnerable are they to having to be given up? You're only vulnerable essentially if you don't know the rules and sometimes you end up being either, you know, counseled or or given bad advice to do something that's actually against your best interest. So the government protects RRSPs. They protect them up to 100% of what's in your RRSP with a slight exemption that if in the last 12 months before you filed for bankruptcy, if you were putting money into your RRSP, the government says, well, that money has to come out. Now, just about any time if someone's coming to see me, they stopped contributing to their RRSP long ago. They're trying to pay their debts every month. They're trying to live. So there's very rare cases where we're taking any of an RRSP. But the thing that breaks my heart, and I'm happy we're having this conversation, is where people have no idea there's a protection for RRSPs. And sometimes they'll have a collection agent that calls them and the collection agent says, you've got no option. You must cash in these RRSPs or I'm coming to your house tomorrow, taking away your furniture, all these things we've said that can't happen. If you cash in your RRSPs, you lose all the protection. And the other, almost the flip side of that is before I seek help, before I get some information, before I come and see you and I've got this debt issue, I think, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just get rid of the, I'll just cash Mm -hmm. these out to pay that. Right. And then I've, I've lost, I've lost that as well. Yeah. You've liquidated your retirement and it almost always doesn't solve the problem. And let's just add to that. You don't have to. You absolutely don't have to. Before you cash in a dollar of RRSPs to pay taxes, or sorry, to pay debts, talk to a trustee. Yeah, because nine times out of 10 or 110 times out of 10, yeah. you get to keep what you've already put into that. That's exactly right. See, and that's the kind of information that's so important to get before you take any steps, before you feel overwhelmed by 
feeling guilty or shameful about what the situation is you're in, this is who you need to go see. Blair Manton, Sands and Associates. The staff is lovely, lovely people. You can get a financial fresh fresh start. It's easy. The number 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I just want to remind you, for information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Fabulous website, loads and loads of questions and great answers uh, that may uh, help you along this process. You know, it's always great to have somebody on the show, a real person who's gone through either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal and not only survived, but benefited greatly uh, from the from the experience. Uh, sometimes their situation can resonate with people and uh, and you get an idea or feel something that, boy, that feels familiar to me. So we're on the show. Uh, we feel very fortunate to have a client of Sands & Associates to come forward and share uh, their story. And uh, we're going to hear from Maya. Hello, Maya. Hi, Elaine. So glad that you could be with us. Happy to be here. So I know that the first question we always like to ask folks that come forward that want to tell their story is, can you describe to us the situation that brought you to Sands & Associates? I sure can. Elaine, I had been, you know, struggling somewhat financially. Things had been tight for, for quite a while due to circumstances that were completely beyond my control. But I was getting by. I was managing until the winter of 1915 to 16, I became extremely ill. 2015, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said 19, Maya, so we were. We just oh, wanted oh to bring you goodness. forward. Yeah. Oh, I'm giving away my age. <laughs> <laughs> Secrets out. Oh, yeah. Secrets out. That. No. Okay, anyway, yeah. yeah, it was at 215 to 216. Sure. I became very ill and found that all of the extra expenses, and unless you've been very, very ill for a number of months, you just have no idea how many extra expenses there are. And it's not a time to to quibble about things. You get what is needed to survive through the experience. And I found myself going into my credit cards and then I found myself going for payday loans. And before long, it was like my whole life was revolving around trying to pay these huge interest payments on these these things. And, and Maya, just, just pausing there for a quick second, because, you know, I know we hear a lot about in the United States, there are medically driven bankruptcies. And, you know, when I tell people what I do, they, they just assume, well, you know, there's, there's no medically driven bankruptcies or consumer proposals in Canada because we got free health care. But, you know, I wonder, can you just give, give a sense, you know, what wasn't covered? Because I know from some of my clients, you know, it's the cost of, you know, whether it's physio or prescription drugs or even hospital parking, there's all these little out of pocket. So what was that for you? Yeah, well, there were those things, and then there there are medications that are definitely not not covered on the basic Medicare plan, and that can add up very very quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I think it's really important. Unless you've experienced it yourself, uh, there is a lot of things that aren't covered that aren't looked after. Um, A lot. Absolutely true. And it sounds like you went from um, not being very well to sort of having that uh, exacerbated by having to worry about all this money situation and this money that you own. And I also wanted to mention, Blair, the fact that uh, Maya did payday loans and credit cards. That is not unusual, is it? No, that that's absolutely a cycle that we see, you know, basically all the way along. And it, it's almost kind of by ease of accessing credit. So, you know, credit cards are kind of tougher to get. You have to apply for, um, you know, once you're at, at the point where, you know, maybe, you know, you can't get another credit card, payday loans, you know, they'll give to almost anybody with, you know, very little checks, but they're also so expensive. And, and Maya, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your experience, but, you know, typically once people get one payday loan, it doesn't stop there. They have to get another to pay back the first one, a third to pay to. back the second. Oh, yeah. You're completely right there, Blair. It's a a terrible, vicious circle. And you're also right about the kind of stress this creates in your life. You know, you're trying to get better, and all you can think about is how can you pay, pay these things off. And, you know, you end up, oh, okay, I'd pay my credit card one month and then pay the payday loan the next month and then something unexpected would come up. And, I mean, I, I was in a real mess. And it was partly because I had always kept a very good credit rating throughout my life before, you know, being meticulous about paying my bills and everything. And becoming really ill like that was the first time where I, I was simply was not able to keep that up. And it was horrible for me, you know, it, I couldn't sleep properly. I didn't want to answer my phone. I didn't want to go out anywhere once I started feeling better. You know, it's humiliating. Yeah, very hard on you for sure. Maya, how long um, was it before you figured out or sought some help or thought that maybe somebody could give you a hand, that that you could go to somebody like Blair at Sands & Associates and, and get some help? Well, actually, um, I had seen an ad on television for another um, outfit. It wasn't something like Sands. It was, I think it was called, I I can't remember what it was, but I I met with a representative from that company, and they were very nice, and they told me about consumer proposals, and he thought that's what I should do. But they wanted um, $1,500 up front. And I was thinking, good grief, if I had $1,500 to give you right now, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in. And I felt really, really discouraged at that point. And I can't even remember, it was probably on the Internet, that I saw an ad by Sands. And I thought, okay, this sounds too good to be true. But I called up and got an interview with the lady who ended up being my trustee. And from then on, things just got so, so much easier for me. I want to just interject here for a second. Blair, this, the first person or the first people that Maya talked to, and they were wanting to charge her $1,500, that 
that isn't a licensed insolvency trustee. Am I yeah, right about that? Absolutely right, Elaine. So any licensed insolvency trustee, whether it's Sands or another firm, there's never a charge for initial consultation. And that's uh, you right. Know, but, you know, for people who, you know, get really discouraged yeah. when they, they run into that situation like that, like I did, that can end up, you know, being the end of trying to reach out for the help. Absolutely. I'm so glad you didn't have $1,500, Maya. I am too now. I really am because I would have ended up doing the wrong thing for my situation and paying very steeply for it. Absolutely. So um, my trustee at Sands explained the situation and, you know, the different things I could do about it. And we decided together what was really best for me at my age, at my time of life, what made more sense. And we went from there, and it's just been so great. And it was a consumer proposal that you ended up going with, am I right? No, it wasn't. We decided that um, a bankruptcy would be the best mm-hmm. best route for me to take because I'm not at a point where I'm that terribly concerned about getting this wonderful credit rating mm-hmm. again. I'm not sure. planning to buy another home or a new car or anything like that. Got it. So it was like, just get a clean slate here and carry on from there. Lovely. And it, that was really the right thing for, for me. It wouldn't be for, for everybody, that's for sure. No, I think that that's really well said, Maya, and I think that's you know part of what I'm proud of at Sands. You know, we don't assume what someone wants to do or needs to do. We provide the information. You know, we'll help you make your decision, say here's things to consider, but at the end of the day, it's what you choose to do to resolve your situation. That's what you're going to do. It doesn't matter our objectives. It's your objectives that, that carry the day here. Um, I wonder, Maya, can you give me a sense, you know, when you, when you sat down and you had the first meeting with us, what was your reality then? Were you getting a lot of, you know, collection calls? Were they threatening you with, with legal action? Um, because a lot of my clients, yeah, they're, they're just almost scared of their shadow by the time they come into the first meeting because of all the threats that have been made, some real and some imagined, you know, in terms of their validity here. What was your reality like? And then I want to contrast that with what happened once you started to work with them. Yeah, well, my reality at that point and after meeting the person from this other outfit, I was feeling really broken down and feeling prepared to walk out of there disappointed again. So it was complete shock to me how how easy things were, how how beautifully she explained everything to me. And I think the best part was the way she listened. She let me tell my story and I found myself telling my story, the real story for the first time to anybody really because I felt safe it was a safe place for me to be and there's not a lot of safe places for somebody who who is in that kind of situation yeah Maya I think your your words are so so just right on point there you know when I sit down with somebody I can actually tell you know this is years that's been up inside and you know finally they can let it out you know sharing with me or with somebody else exactly you do need yeah. that safety. You don't want to feel judged, and you want someone that can help, right? Otherwise, you're really exposing yourself. You're really hoping that, you know, there's going to be a better outcome. Yeah, this is the big thing. I did not ever, not for a minute, feel judged. I was never scolded. Nothing like that. There was just, you know, it was very empathetic listening she, she was doing with me, and it was a, a really important step. I needed that very much. Now, I, I know your situation is, is unique, 
Maya, um, because you went you went the bankruptcy route with your uh, trustee. Um, are there some things that going after going through the process that impacted you and uh, about your financial, you know, how you handle your finances? Because it sounded like you were doing everything right beforehand. It was the the illness that got in your way. But was there any was there some of those things that you were able to take away, or or was it just all good information that you'd already been using? Um, what it was really, it reawakened my my old sort of attitude about taking care of things. I had pretty much given up. I was just paying the bills, the credit card, the payday loans off, my phone company, and whatever was left over. I would try and get enough to eat and whatnot, but it was it was a real scramble. So I wasn't even trying to budget anymore. Got it. I didn't. I just paid everything off and whatever was left, I tried to live on it. So for like almost a couple of years, I did no budgeting whatsoever. Uh, the one thing about Sands & Associates, I just want to remind our listener that sands-trustee.com or uh, call the, the 1-800 number to get that first free consultation uh, and to find an office near you. And the number is easy. It's 1-800-661-3030. Thank you so much, Maya. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Hey, Blair, listen to this. As of 2016, Canadians made $32.3 million overnight trips. Wow. Okay, so we're overnight somewhere. Mm -hmm. 82% of that $32 million were for leisure. Mm -hmm. So what a great idea to do tips on how to travel on a budget, because obviously tons of people are doing it. Well, yeah, and travel is one of the joys of life for, for many people. So, you know, definitely for myself, you know, a lot of the times I'm working so that I can plan the next trip and, you know, go off and see the world and different things like that. So, you know, I think travel can only expand horizons and make people happier, but you got to do it the right way. And, you know, ideally traveling on a budget, you're still able to achieve and see new cultures and experience new things without breaking the bank and without having, you know, a, a multi-month or multi-year financial hangover because of that trip of a lifetime that just wasn't planned correctly. And believe me, listener, Blair does big travel stuff. So he's he knows of what he speaks. So budget, do you do you need to be on a budget? You absolutely do. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And if you don't have a budget for your travel, it's almost impossible for you to come home from the trip saying, well, gee, I really kept things under control. I spent less than I thought. Um, so really before you, you head out on the trip, just sit down, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or a handwritten sheet, something like that, just figure out even, you know, just the big costs of, you know, your accommodation, um, you know, your transit in between places. You don't need to schedule everything or organize everything down to the minute. There's no joy or fun in that, but you absolutely do need to set a budget. Um, if nothing else, just to give you a little bit of a guidepost of what you can and can't do on the trip. And so many times, depending on, on, on really, depending on what you're doing, but often you have a pretty good idea of what this thing's going to cost because you're pre-buying uh, airline tickets, for mm-hmm. example, or at least the big one yep. to get you from wherever you are in British Columbia to somewhere else around the world. Um, and then the rest of the stuff for sure makes sense to have mm-hmm. an idea. So plan 
plan the plan the budget, budget the plan, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, plan yeah. the work, work the plan, plan the vacation. <laughs> yeah, either way. Yeah. And and often people yeah. know how they like to travel too, mm-hmm. right? So some people love to do you know uh, bed and breakfast, for example, or uh, bicycle trips where it's an all inclusive thing, or go on a cruise or whatever. So you are getting lots of information. Uh, sometimes though, you don't get a chance to book. Uh, flights. Let's say you're somewhere in India and you're going from A to B and you actually can't buy that ticket until you get to A mm-hmm. to get to B. So, yeah, planning is, is sounds like it's important to do because it could cost a huge amount of money otherwise. Yeah, well, especially in the domestic market, you know, travel companies or airlines or whatever, they really segment, you know, the business traveler, they're going to charge a whole lot more money to than the leisure traveler. And what's different about business versus leisure is that business doesn't book in advance. So if you're trying to book a same day airfare or something to leave tomorrow, flexibility, different things like that, you're going to pay a big premium because that's a business traveler type affair. Right. If you're able to book well in advance, you've got the plan, you've got the budget, you're probably going to save with, you know, early bird airfares or discounts on hotels. Really the last minutes. Sometimes you can get the screaming deals, but for the most part, prices are higher because of that business traveler they're trying to capture. What are the tips? You know, how do you find out the deals? Where do you go? How, what do you do? For me, I'm a big fan of um, the online aggregator site. So what I mean by that is a site that's going to check a bunch of other sites and do the work for me. So as annoying as the commercials are, Travago, I use quite a bit for hotels and I found, you know, some quite good deals there. Um, you know, for airfare, I like Kayak. So K-A-Y-A-K, again, they're going to search all the airline websites, show you different options. And in both of those um, services, you don't pay anything extra for them. So if you know where to look online, again, Travago is great for hotels. Kayak is very good for airfare. That's usually a good first step. And what I really like on both of these sites is you can set up price alerts. So I could say, you know what, my goal is I want to go to Costa Rica sometime next year, April to June, something like that tell me when the airfare gets below a certain point. You know, you don't have to buy it then, but at least you're monitoring it. It'll give you an email a notification of that. And sometimes it's hard because if folks have children or they or or their teachers or or you know their work is kind of not seasonal but you know they're working September to June and they can only be away July and August. Um, that's hard. But I guess what's the alternative? Always travel in an off season? Well, that's definitely an ideal. If you're trying to travel on a budget and if you have flexibility, then yeah, the, the time to go is typically not when everybody else wants to go. Um, so, you know, the peak of summer vacation is probably not when you want to be hitting Paris because probably everyone's on vacation there themselves and all the tourists are the only people that are there. Right. The population of Paris goes from whatever it is normally up <laughs> yeah. to 25 million in July and August or something crazy like right. that. Right. And it's hot and everything is crowded and you're exactly. paying more. Yeah. If you're able to do that same trip, you know, in the spring or in the fall. And again, unfortunately, typically kids are in school, which is why the peak times are when kids are not in school, March yeah. break, Christmas, summers and things like that. So if you've got flexibility, you'll definitely definitely save some money by being able to try to travel in off-peak periods. So accommodation savviness, mm-hmm. uh, that's sort of taken on a new meaning nowadays because we have things like VRBO, yeah. uh, Airbnb, all, uh, house swapping. Well, I know lots of folks who do that. 
yeah, I'm such a fan of, of all of those services, you know, the sharing economy, so to speak. Uh, I was just working in my Nanaimo office last week, and instead of a hotel, I was able to get an Airbnb for basically the same price. It was, you know, a very nice uh, little apartment across the street from the office, more of a home than I would have felt, you know, in a hotel room and didn't cost me anything more. So I'm a big fan of that. Now, one thing, if people take nothing else away from this segment here for accommodation, is to look into hostels. So H-O-S-T-E-L. Okay. Um, not just hotels. And I used to actually be on the board of directors for Hosteling International for Canada. And hosteling is so misunderstood in Canada. Some people think, you know, maybe it's, you know, for homeless folks or indigent or different <laughs> things like that. Well, but no, no it's, it's for young people who have backpacks and don't want to have a shower every day, isn't it? Well, there's that, there's that segment, sure. The shower I'm not sure about because there's all provided. But uh, one of the fastest growing group of hostlers is actually they're retired or even age 55 plus. So hostels across Canada, there's over 50 of them. Some of them are in incredibly historic buildings. Um, there's one that may or may not appeal. It's in Ottawa. It's in a jail. So you can go you know, to this you know, live jail building and you sleep in a cell there, which is actually more cool than it seems. Wow. Um, the one in Whistler was actually part of the Athletes Village uh, for the 2010 Olympic Games. So if you think Whistler accommodation is completely out of reach, look into the Hostling International Hostel in Whistler and you can get private rooms. You can maintain your privacy. But if you're okay um, you know, to sleep in a dorm or in a, in a bunk bed and share Sure. bathroom, uh, you know, there are hostels you might be able to get for 20 or $30 a night. There's your accommodation sorted out, even in a first world expensive country like Canada. Oh, that's really, I had no idea. I wouldn't have even thought about that. I have, uh, you know, documentaries or, or Lonely Planet documentaries in my head of, of Thailand and mm. Middle Eastern countries. And you're, you know, just in there with everybody else. And it's like, oh dear, I don't know if I could do that. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, no, I think you definitely, the, I always joke that, you know, the extra S there instead of hotel hostel, it stands for social. So the idea if you're in a hostel is you're not going straight to your room, lock the door and that's that. Um, it's that you're ideally meeting other travelers, you're having adventures. Hostels often organize different tours and experiences um, that, you know, you really wouldn't be able to find out of, out of many hotels and definitely you wouldn't get the same social atmosphere as well. Now you've got a big section in our notes on this topic about uh, eating and where to eat, how to eat, and where to eat, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it's really easy to blow your, your budget on food, especially if you're traveling around and you're looking for the comforts of home, and maybe that means McDonald's or Starbucks or different Western chain restaurants and things like that. Um, so obviously, if you're traveling, hopefully you're not doing that, um, but do be aware of how much money you can save if you have a place with a kitchen like an Airbnb or in a hostel, there's always a shared kitchen as well. Right. Um, so just trying to, you know, to deal more with snacks that you buy at a grocery store or a farmer's market, you know, pack for your day rather than just dealing with the immediate convenience um, and, you know, just buying things on the spot. Uh, uh, not, not buying so many souvenirs. Yeah, take home photos, not souvenirs. It's not a bad suggestion, you know. Snow globe or whatever it is, not to, you know, belie people that, that you know, connect snow globes. Right, but, um, <laughs> exactly. Generally, most souvenirs don't have a lasting value. They're usually not made locally anyway. So take a photo, have the memory, have the experience. And use currency and not your credit cards. I think that's a great idea. It's much harder to, to part with cash than it is just to turn over plastic. So if you're able to roll with cash, and obviously be safe about it. Uh, it'll be one less way that you can overextend your budget. Hey, listen, that, that's all about our travel tips. If you're interested in finding out more, if you're in a bit of a, a debt situation or a large debt situation, uh, go to the uh, Sands and Associates website. It's sands-trustee.com. They've got loads of information, good questions, lots of answers uh, they've also got the 1-800 number there, and I'm going to give that to you right now, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.